Well, hey everybody, welcome back to the Primary Care Podcast. It is your boy, Dr. Mark List, coming at you today with another episode. Uh, Before we get into today's episode, we're going to start this episode like we do every episode, uh, trying to take over the world. Nope, that was Pinky in the Brain from Animaniacs, not me. Uh, We're going to start with a joke at theprimarycarepod at gmail.com. Let me uh, me pull up the joke here and we'll get started. Give me a second. All right, all right, all right. Dr. List, uh, why does Norway have barcodes on their ships? Answer? So they can just Scandinavian. Scandinavian? I love it. I love it. Let's uh, let's start the podcast. Panic Air Podcast is Pod girls, pod boys, pod. It is your pod host, Dr. Mark List, your friendly uh, podcasting host, Xavier Marino. Uh, I, am, I am here with another episode. Uh, yet again, in a new podcasting recording uh, location. Today I am in a hotel room. I am traveling for work, actually, in a, in a, in a small town. And I'm in a, I'm in a small little. Uh, uh, hotel, so it sounds a little bit different. That's why. Um, you know, I did not mention uh, that Joe came today in the primary care pod at gmail.com inbox. That is where you can talk to me and, and give me any uh, requests on articles, uh, topics. Today we're going to hit up uh, diverticulitis. We're going to dive right in because I was reminded of diverticulitis um, with a recent article that came out in the Annals of Internal Medicine. And, and perhaps you guys saw this article too. Um, and it's comparative effectiveness of harms uh, and benefits of antibiotics for outpatient diverticulitis. So you and I in primary care, uh, we deal with diverticulitis fairly often, at least if you're like me. Um, and, and commonly, if you, if you look at what is the recommended, what the recommended outpatient antibiotic um, regimens are, you get a couple of different options. And no big surprise, for example, if you search a, a database like UpToDate uh, that says basically uh, you'd have to look at regimens like a fluoroquinolone plus flagyl. Uh, that fluoroquinolone can be Cipro, can be Levo, and can be Moxifloxacin as well. Uh, Levofe- Levoquin, um, all, all, all three of those are good plus flagyl. It also gives the option of doing Bactrim plus flagyl. Um, and, and finally, just plain Augmentin. And I've always liked Augmentin because I always like to go uh, with the um, single there ther- single dose um, just twice a day, um, in which case you can do the twice a day dosing or you can do the every the TID day dosing, um, the TID day dosing, the TID dosing um, of, of Augmentin, which is, you know, amoxicillin clavulanate, uh, clavulanic acid for you international listeners. So when we talk about, well, what's the best option, okay? There's a trial here in the Annals of Internal Medicine. They looked at two cohort studies and the majority of the patients, right? This was in Medicare databases over the course of 10 years. One group was in a private employer-sponsored insurance cohort. The other was in a Medicare cohort. And basically, um, they looked at all of these patients who were diagnosed with 
diverticulitis and then were placed on an antibiotic. And they, they looked at antifluoroquinolone and flagyl compared to augmentin, amoxicillin clavulonic acid. And there was a huge chunk of people in that combo group, right? The flagyl metronidazole slash fluoroquinolone group um, versus the amoxicillin group was about 10 times less patients. But even so, even if you, you parse out the individual fluoroquinolones, uh, the one-year risk of admission didn't, was, was clinically non-significant. The, the risk difference was 0.1 percentage points. The one-year risk for urgent surgery, zero percentage points different. The three-year uh, risk for elective surgery, again, 0.2 percentage points difference, uh, non-clinically significant. So again, there was no difference in one-year admission or recurrence, uh, et cetera, between the groups. But the risk of C. diff infection was twice as high, 1.2% to 0.6%, right? Twice as high and was statistically significant. Trying to take the combination therapy of metronidazole and the fluoroquinolone, interestingly, compared to a lower risk of being on amoxicillin, clavulonic acid, aka augmentin. So if you have to choose one, it appears that augmentin is better. Now, who needs antibiotics? If we look at the evidence-based recommendation, right? And so if we look at, hold up, where is that? If we look at the evidence-based recommendations, okay? This is um, this is back in a uh, journal of surgery in 2017. The British Journal of Surgery looked at randomization of clinical trials of observation okay, versus antibiotic treatment for first episode of CT-proven uncomplicated acute diverticulitis. And this is not the only study, but this study was actually looking at people that had uncomplicated uncomplicated diverticulitis, but were treated in the hospital. There was another study, which uh, I'm not going to get into because I'm not going to have enough time, but actually looked at outpatient management. But these were uncomplicated cases, so they didn't have systemic symptoms such as sepsis, fever, uh, elevated white counts, but had CT-proven diverticulitis. So in this case, they were in the hospital. In the other trial, uh, they were as an outpatient. But the data showed in this trial that observation alone with standard care, basically, bowel rest, um, medicine for pain and inflammation, um, and basically changing diet during the episode, compared to adding on antibiotics to standard care, had no difference in terms of readmission, mortality, um, recurrent diverticulitis, need for surgery, uh, time, uh, time of the actual case, right? How, how fast did they recover? There was no significantly, there was no statistically significant difference. The only thing that was different between the two groups is the patients that did not get antibiotics were actually in the hospital shorter. Again, there was not any reason there to keep them there. Uh, just by a day though, two days versus three days. So the American Gastrointestinal uh, Gastroenterology Association, American uh, Gastro Gastroenterology Association, the AGA, right? Um, the AGA clinical practice update uh, just came out again in the last month. They recommend that CT is the diagnostic tool. It should be if nobody's if the patient has never had an episode of diverticulitis, then they should definitely get a CT con to confirm. Um, and imaging should be considered to all those patients who fail to improve with therapy or are immunocompromised or who have had multiple recurrences and are contemplating prophylactic surgery, right? So those are the indications for CT scan. 
Now, the next recommendation is pretty interesting that they talk about during the acute phase of uncomplicated diverticulitis, clear liquid diet. And then diet should advance only as symptoms improve and then back down basically uh, if symptoms worsen. And who needs antibiotics? Well, according to the AGA, just like we talked about, antibiotic treatment can be used selectively rather than routinely in immunocompetent patients with mild, uncomplicated diverticulitis without signs of sepsis. They talk about if you want to throw in some, well, give me some guidelines to see who maybe I can skip antibiotics on or not. Um, In general, right, uh, this is expert opinion, but data has shown that younger patients with high amounts of pain on presentation, so both groups, younger patients and groups with high amounts of pain on presentation, have higher rates of complications, so consider that. But for most immunocompetent patients, including elderly patients, you can hold off on antibiotics. Now, antibiotic treatment is advised in patients with uncomplicated diverticulitis who are frail, who have multiple comorbidities such as obesity, smoking, also increased risk for occurrences and complications. And you can also test a C-reactive protein, okay? If a CRP is above 140 or have a baseline white blood cell count above 15, um, then antibiotic is advised. Okay. You could also use antibiotics if there's any signs of complicated diverticulitis, obviously. Any signs of, uh, of CT abnormalities such as abscess also likely need um, antibiotics. If they have patients have refractory symptoms that are worsening or have vomiting, need to be started on antibiotics. And now here is the discussion that I want to talk about, and that is risk factors. So to reduce the risk of recurrence, right? So patients had this, they ask, why did I have this? Patients with diverticulitis should consume, quote, according to AGA, a high-quality diet, aka not the SAD, not the standard American diet, unquote. Um, They didn't put that, just kidding, it wasn't, uh, they didn't put the SAD anywhere in there, but they should have. They need to achieve a normal body mass index, okay, so overweight and obesity increase the risk of recurrence. Be routinely physically active as as sedentary lifestyles associated with diverticulitis, and do not smoke. Smoking highly associated with recurrent diverticulitis. Now, patients with a history of diverticulitis should avoid regular, aka two or more times per week, of NSAID use. And I think that's interesting. Um, I think that's interesting. Now, when we talk about um, NSAIDs themselves, I think... uh, it's, it's, it's greater for taking anti-inflammatory drugs, um, increase the risk, uh, not a ton, but a little bit alcoholism, but not alcohol itself increases the risk for diverticulitis. Opioids are associated with diverticulitis as well. And perforation from diverticulitis again, probably because of slow gut transit. Um, interesting. Now it's important that you know that to tell your patients that genetics play a role in about 50% of the risk of diverticulitis. Okay, so again, a lot of times, most of the reason that people get diverticulitis is not from what they're doing, not from what they're eating, it's because of just who they are and who their parents are. And, and there's and there's really no major way to fix that. Um, treatment options um, should not be treated with mesalamine. There's no benefit to, as of yet to any trials with probiotics or rifaximin, which have all been linked to treatment of diverticulitis, all have not had very good success in studies. Um, patients should be educated that 
complicated diverticulitis is most often the first presentation of diverticulitis. And every time that you have recurrences, you are less likely to get complicated diverticulitis, which is, I think, pretty darn interesting. Um, there's a whole lot of discussion about uh, surgery, which we're going to skip. But I wanted to go circle back to what I think is probably the most common conversation. I'm sure everyone out there listening is nodding their head saying, I've had a patient with diverticulitis and they read something about nuts and seeds and not eating those anymore. And then you go to UpToDate and the UpToDate authors basically say, well, evidence-based, uh, there is no evidence-based, but in our practice, we've never seen a nut or a seed in a, in a perforated diverticulum. I remember reading this a while back um, when I was in residency. Um, and, and so they don't think that has any impact. So what do the actual studies, not just expert opinion say uh, on this. Now, this is a, another really, really good article in 2019 in the, in the Journal of Gastroenterology. It's the Epidemiology, Pathophysiology, and Treatment of Diverticulitis. And here, they actually go through, okay, in this study, they, they, have, they actually look at the risk factors of incident diverticulitis. And so physical activity, um, again, about a risk factor. So people that are at the highest activity level of daily exercise have nearly half the risk, not quite half, but about uh, a third of a reduction of developing um, diverticulitis compared to you know baseline people who are sedentary. Obese people have at least 1.3 to 4.4 relative risk uh, increase compared to people of average BMI. So obesity is a major risk factor for, for um, diverticulitis. Again, if you look at hip waist to hip ratio, also associated with the risk of people that have a high high abdominal fat, highly associated with diverticulitis, smoking about about 1.5 of a relative risk increase of developing diverticulitis. Again, NSAIDs greater than two times per week associated with a 1.7 uh, relative risk increase. So again. Pretty interesting, corticosteroids, opioids, a relative risk of two, which is interesting. But if we look at sibling with diverticular disease, again, genetics, almost a relative risk of three. So again, pretty darn important that you people understand their genetic risk. Interestingly, both statins and vitamin D use, uh, people with high levels of vitamin D, people who are on statins, have about half of the risk of developing diverticulitis. Again, probably some anti-inflammatory properties with statins. Again, there's pleiotropic effects of statins. This is probably anti-inflammatory. Vitamin D could be anti-inflammatory, could also be immunomodulating, could also be that healthy people with high levels of vitamin D don't get uh, diverticulitis as much as unhealthy people with bad lifestyle who are obese. And that might not be causal, like with everything in vitamin D, it might just be a correlation. Uh, now, I saved the best for last. I saved the best for last. I teased it a little bit there, and then I went off on a tangent as I wanted to read all these other relative risk increases or decreases. Diet. What can you tell patients about their diet? Well, interestingly, popcorn and nuts, seeds, things that have historically been told to people with diverticulitis, oh, don't take these. They're going to get stuck in one of your diverticulum and cause a flare-up. Intake of nuts, popcorn, and seeds are associated with a decreased risk, a lower relative risk of developing acute diverticulitis. Isn't that, again, so the actual science completely speaks against those old wives' tales that we were telling patients for decades and decades, okay? Highest level of fiber intake, okay? So again, gut colonic, tra colonic transport, right? So we talked about opioids slowing things down, sedentary lifestyle slowing things down, binding you up. Fiber, 
highest highest quintile uh, of fiber intake associated with a relative risk reduction of 0.5 to 0.7. So high fiber, high nuts, high popcorn, vegetarian diets, about 0.7 again, high in fiber, high in vegetables help get things moving. Uh, a Western dietary pattern, right? The SAD, 1.5 relative risk increase, right? So again, the, uh, high, high red meat intake, again, 1.5. So you can talk to people about the true dietary change for diverticulitis is actually eat more nuts, eat more seeds, eat more popcorn, eat fiber. But ultimately, obesity has far, of, of all the things I've read, obesity, the higher ends of the BMI range, 4.4 relative risk. That's even higher than genetics, although genetics make up an, a massive a massive underlying background. Um, but again, obesity, big thing. Dietary, big thing. Um, physical activity, very important. Not being sedentary, not smoking, and interestingly, not taking NSAIDs or opioids, also very important. So um, again, I, I, I hope that this crash course in diverticulitis, uh, a nice little review, Hopefully not much of this was new for anybody, but hopefully it was a good review. Hopefully um, you now have some takeaways about what to talk about with patients when they have that dietary question about diverticulitis, about what to do. And uh, again, um, I-, I had a great time renewing and-, and relearning about this conversation, actually looking at the evidence, not just like, oh, hey, let's just go by expert opinion. Let's do what I did in medical school forever. Um, I think that this was a good review for me, especially when it came to educating my patients on risk factors of diverticulitis because that's what everybody's interested in and that's what all of us are talking about patients about. So um, again, hopefully you enjoyed this. Uh, thanks again for listening. This has been uh, Dr. Mark List with the Primary Care Podcast. Again, you can hit me up at primarycarepod at gmail.com uh, with any uh, future uh, feedback or any topics you want to hit up. And uh, again, I'll sign off saying if you don't need to stay up all night, stay up to date. Thanks and have a great day.